skated, you wrote graffiti, you listened to rap music. There was really no other option. I had to lie and tell them that I was 21, even though I was probably about 17, 18 at the time. I developed a reputation around the office just as a kid who was very early on records. He happened to be in there talking to one of the DJs and they played uh, an unmixed version of My Name Is. And I was like, is this the dude from Detroit? America, y'all had to see me. Y'all had to get used to this space. My friend Yasmin was the producer of the You Hear It First uh, segment on Kanye. Hey, can you put me in touch with Kanye? For a time, we were really good friends. An incredibly beautiful woman who was sort of always adjacent to uh, Paris Hilton. We'd done some, you know, uh, deep internet digging and figured out, oh, this was Robert Kardashian's daughter. Her name's Kim. Incredible. So Kim Kardashian saved your job in effect. More than once. I don't want to jinx it, but I think we might win the World Cup. I know, myself and Jamie Heathscliff, oracles of rugby. You're very welcome back to the Jack McDonald Show. Um, incredible scenes there yesterday for Ireland to put on such a valiant display against South Africa. It really would leave you just, just hoping, thinking there might be a chance that we're going to take that trophy home. Um, and the scenes, I mean, I remember when Mayo were about to be Dublin a couple of years ago and I was talking to a couple of dubs up there and they were saying they had hotel rooms booked in Westport for what sounded like a full week. They were ready to get going. Um, you know, there was no allegiances. It was all about the session. And I would imagine we are going to have this place rocking. When you think about Ken Doherty in 1997, sent the country wild for potting a few balls in the World Snooker uh, Final. I mean, Ken is a fantastic player, but this certainly will capture the country's imagination to the same extent, if not more. Um, and I mean, you know, everything at the moment is in massive change and turmoil. You look over to an institution like the Late Late, uh, I mean, I haven't been here in about two weeks and you have Ireland on the precipice possibly of winning a World Cup or certainly on a very good path to do so. And the Late Late is a completely different programme. Insane. Um, it's obviously we've had about two weeks of it now and we've had them kind of tweaking and changing. Funny enough, they have, I think, been promising a different approach to guests, different guests, new guests. Of course, they don't release the names of the people on the programme um, you just have to kind of tune in and hope. Uh, so it means everybody around about Dublin is speculating if they see someone famous or quasi-famous, will they be on the late late? There was rumours that maybe Kevin Bridges would be there. I remember just maybe the Thursday or the Friday of that first late late, I saw David, what I thought was David Cross, around about Dublin. Um, but he did have a bit of a German accent, so that's why I, I gave pause that perhaps that wasn't the David Cross we saw at Alvin and the Chipmunks. I think the, the program is, is capturing so many people's imagination. Um, and in fact, Patrick Kilty, not only he, has he uh, started The Late Late, he's got a new film out, Bally Walter, which I had the pleasure of seeing in the IFI there on um, 
on on Wednesday. Wednesday, he did a Q&A afterwards and um, he took about three or four questions. Q&A was grand. He seems like a really nice guy, but it was funny. There was one Canadian lady who asked a question, fair enough, maybe a minute, a minute and a half of a question. And then she went on a maybe like a four minute diatribe about this movie and what it meant and COVID. And everybody in the audience was kind of like, yeah, yeah, wrap it up now, wrap it up. Uh, can I just say, so I, I think if you do have the opportunity, tune into the World Cup, tune into the Late Late and watch Barry Walter, fantastic film. Um, and yeah, I mean, the sky is is the limit. Um, it's just a, a kind of a bizarre time. I suppose we were off there for a couple of months uh, from a news perspective. Things were kind of quiet after the Ryan, um, Ryan Tuberty ordeal and all of that. And so now things are getting back going. Even you had a week or two ago, a man, Dave Kennedy, I believe his name was. Uh, Dave, tell us, what was your reaction when you came across this? Uh, complete shock, to be honest. I was walking along just with the dog and came across the impact site. Fortunately enough, I love space and exploration and uh, astrophysics, so I was a bit surprised when I saw it, but I knew immediately that it was an impact site. And then lo and behold, right in the middle of it was the rock. He was convinced he had found a a meteor. He was absolutely convinced. It turns out it was just a load of lads who of a Sunday dug a big hole and a rock fell into it. So, you know, just in every, even the beaches are producing newsworthy moments. I myself, I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks because I've been in college. I don't want to say studying hard, but, you know, around about that. It, Of course, it takes so much time and so much effort to kind of readjust, get your head straight. You're living with new people, living with two guys who are originally from France and I kind of... Um, you know, was telling them, oh, I, I was there and I went to this place and this place and this place. And typical French Parisian style, everything was wrong. I said, I went to the Eiffel Tower. That's his shit. <laughs> I went to this place, this place, shit, shit, shit. I uh, went to a cafe, wrong cafe. But I'm hoping next time I go, they'll have some great recommendations for me. And, uh, you know, D- DCU is a weird and wild place. Uh, it's obviously now you're in second year. So Things are different. Um, uh, of course, if you do enjoy this program, there's some um, programming on DCUFM, which is the college radio station that you may or may not enjoy. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. It is incredibly hit or miss, but it's college radio. Like, What, what do you expect? It's certainly more free flowing anyway. We had the, what they called an orientation broadcast there this week. And they said to me, would you do an hour long show and maybe talk about some college topics? I said, fine, perfect. So I showed up to the studio at the allotted time, sat down into the chair, queued up the music, got a few kind of things to talk about, opened up the mic fader, started talking, and 30 seconds later, I start hearing my voice reverberating, like, the, like you know, what I was saying maybe 20 seconds ago. I'm like, that's really weird, carrying on, carrying on. And then I look over and I realise my voice is being projected onto the quad in the college. So um, if there's anything that would make you want to shut up is hearing your voice once in your own headphones and then a second time being reprojected onto the college campus. And I'm not going to lie, I don't think there was a fantastic reaction maybe to me, but maybe to any of it. I mean, um, 
people aren't particularly fans of having um, microphones kind of blasted at them through a tin box. I did then just for fun because I was kind of like, well, we're here anyway. So I started playing music, music from like, I don't know, it's the 60s, the 70s, um, dance music from like literally two months ago. So it was it was like there was a jukebox on ecstasy. It was just all across the uh, the absolute musical spectrum. But, you know, a uh, new challenge, new, new way to approach it. And hopefully college brings with it um, many new tidings and, and all of you out there who are embarking on either college or um, I know there's a lot of people not in college, but going to some of the freshers events. I had to laugh when I saw a guy called um, uh, Half Arse Gym Rat, who did a bit of a tour of the kind of fresher events last week. And he did, I think it was Galway, Limerick, fairly solid. And then he was in Castle Bar and you're thinking like, Sorry, mate, but you're, there's not, there's not going to be much here. Like it's just the you know the six lads in the pub who are always in the pub on a Wednesday. It's not it's not Freshers Tuesday or anything. It's just Martin's having a pint. Joining me now is a man who has had a front seat to some of the most important moments in contemporary culture, from meeting Jay Z at 21 to watching Kanye construct My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, helping propel Complex into an international brand, and discovering Kim Kardashian. Noah Callahan Bever, you're very welcome to the show. What a CV. Oh, well, thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. You know, it's been a, a, a fun adventure. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, I don't know where to jump off. One of the things that actually stood out to me when I was doing a bit of prep was uh, your mother and your father. Um, your mother, this kind of real traditionalist and your father maybe a little bit more obscure. Um, talk to me about them. Yeah, I mean, you know, my parents met in grad school at uh, Princeton. They were both uh, historians or studying to be historians. Um, but my mom went into finance and worked on Wall Street in the 80s um, as a bond trader. Um, and my dad uh, went and made video games um, and made a bunch of, uh, I think, probably a half dozen different um, historical simulators um, back in the days of like floppy disks. Um, and then subsequently after that would go on to become a, a history professor. Um, at uh, SUNY Westbury. And he was the man who gave you your first ever professional credit. You had a credit on a video game. It's true. Uh, if, if you Google me, uh, the first thing on the internet is from a playtesting credit in 1987 on the game Airborne Ranger. Um, the story there is just, you know, I would go see my dad um, during like spring break uh, and summer breaks uh, as a kid. And, you know, he didn't really have any... Um, childcare situation for me at the time. So he would just bring me to the office at Microprose, the company he worked for, and would just sit me down at a computer right next to his and would just have me play test whatever games they were getting ready to put out um, and just play them until I could find errors and then write them down um, and then go over them with the developers um, later. So, you know, at seven, eight years old, um, I was doing that. And then I, you know, I think he probably thought it was pretty funny, but he got me credited on these, you know, in the booklets, um, back in, back in 87, 88. Um, and somehow they have been archived on the internet. That's immense, isn't it? It's immense. And you mentioned that, uh, your parents weren't together at the time. And I thought, I think that's, that's pretty interesting as well, because it's so often the case with artists, um, and people who go into creative fields that their parents have this maybe tumultuous relationship. Maybe they're living in what we would call Irish divorce, where they're technically married, but can't stand the sight of each other, or they have separated or all these kind of unique living situations. What do you think about that from your own perspective and maybe from the artists you've encountered? Many of them, I'm sure, have similar kind of home stories. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much the divorce necessarily um, contributed, but I will say that, like, for me, having parents who are so insanely different from one another was really, like, instrumental in creating who I was. And I do think my personality is sort of equal parts, both of them. Um, And yeah, I mean, perhaps they were too different to have a successful marriage in the long term. Um, But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely for a lot of the artists that I've dealt with, you know, your, your home life, I think, uh, can contribute in a major way to it. And I, and I also think like, you know, when there is sort of tension within that relationship, um, it creates space for a kid to want to go do weird artistic things because, you know, they have feelings that they want to express and their parents are sort of otherwise occupied. And so it gives you a lot of time to kind of like sort of, sort of just, sit and be quiet with, you know, your own thoughts and your own feelings and, and try to figure out how to get them out. You obviously had a, an, an absolute love and a, an adoration for music at a young age. Um, you went on to kind of write bits and pieces, but you were digging in different crates and kind of hanging around in, in scenes in New York that were particularly underground. Take me into that world. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I grew up in New York. My, my mom moved there um, when I was five years old. And you know, it, it's sort of hard to explain just how vibrant the city was in that moment. You know, you walk down to take the subway and, you know, whole cars, uh, you know, draped in graffiti are going by you. You know, every block you were on, you could hear the sounds of, you know, hip hop and, and R&B and things like that. And, you know, kids were skating down at the Brooklyn Banks. We lived down by the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, and I would see kids doing tricks and stuff over there. And so I think, you know... For me, it just was like such an exciting, powerful energy. It There was really no other option. Like it was just kind of, you know, and not just for me, but I think for all the kids that were growing up in the city in that sort of time period, um, it was just like the thing you did, you know, you skated, you wrote graffiti, you listened to rap music. Um, and I think, uh, you know, for me, I think the combination of, having this sort of emergent, vibrant culture happening at the same time that I'm watching my dad make computer games and I'm seeing him, you know, go to like, uh, you know, game developer uh, conferences or uh, conventions and like, you know, have lines of kids waiting for him to sign, you know, the box to his game and understanding this idea that like he's taking these ideas out of his head and turning them into entertainment. And it's having such a visceral impact on these people's lives. They've like come out to this convention to meet him and to interact with him. And for me, I think that like the confluence of those two energies were just, was just so powerful. I knew from a very early age, like I want to make things like that is clearly what I want to do. Um, and you know, I had grown up really wanting to illustrate comics and I loved comics as, as a kid. Um, I don't know if you know much about the comic book market, but completely oblivious, I must say. Well, so it was a very exciting scene in the like late eighties and early nineties. And then, uh, the bottom fell out around 1994, 95, and it became, uh, you know, pretty, pretty depressing and just creatively, um, sort of, uh, empty, um, in the mid nineties. And for me that happened right at the same time that, you know, I would say my, my interest in music upshifted from, you know, when you're a small kid, okay, I, 
I hear the Beastie Boys, I hear Oh Cool J, I like it. By the time I'm 14, you know, I have a real interest in like participating and understanding how the music is being made and who are the people that are making it. And then you start going to record stores, you start seeing rappers and, and producers, you know, buying records. Um, and all of a sudden you realize that this, this whole community is happening, you know, outside your front door. Um, that's and- fascinating though, that it was your second love because that's the same with Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor, like many people wanted to be a football star and then at four, 13 or 14 kind of realized that couldn't happen. And he had done a bit of boxing, entered John Kavanaugh's UFC gym and becomes within years becomes this UFC megastar. Uh, I don't have many other examples to lean on, but I do imagine that that is often the case that people realize sometimes their first love, often professional sports or different interests for yourself. Comics doesn't quite work out, but this love and passion that they've poured into one works out in another. Yeah. I mean, for me, it it was like, I don't, you know, you get older and like when you're listening to Illmatic and then you're looking at a Green Lantern comic, one of them is really corny and one of them is like, you know, everything that you sort of aspire to, to, to be as a creative. Um, and you know, it just was like, oh, well this is, you know, comics are not growing at the rate that I want them to. Um, and you know, I was just sort of captured by all of the innovation and really the like, you know, I mean, this is the moment that hip hop is reaching kind of like it's, you know, creative apex in a lot of ways. Um, and it happens to coincide with me being 13, 14, 15, um, which, you know, I, there's tons of studies that are like, you know, point to like that period being sort of the most formative in terms of one's musical taste. And so, you know, again, just that sort of kismet of timing and interest, um, you know, it it just drew me into it. It was like, all right, well, I I can't rap, I can't make beats and I can't DJ uh, and I certainly can't break dance, but I want to participate and be uh, immersed in this culture. What can I do? Um, And it was like, well, I love the source and I love rap pages um, and I love vibe. And I think, you know, it must be really cool for all these people that get to write critically and like think about, you know, they're paid to think about this music in, uh, you know, as a profound a way as they possibly can. And maybe that's the place for me to get in. And frankly, you know, I also started to understand, you know, because it was the mid nineties and there was a lot of, uh, hip hop zines that like making a zine in and of itself is a creative act. Mm. Um, and so it's like not, it's not just reflected light. You are actually creating something. And I saw, you know, when I found like the first issues of Ego Trip, I was like, this is so entertaining. It, you know, it reminded me of probably what people who read the first issues of uh, National Lampoons back in the like late 60s. Um, it spoke felt. to you in some way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was just acerbic and funny, but with a, a deep reverence and a deep knowledge of the subject matter. And it was like, this is, this is the kind of thing that I want to get involved in. And as this um, passion for music is growing and, and ch- you're, you know, your own kind of life is changing around there at those formative ages, so is New York. You know, it was in this kind of 70s, it was dubbed this hell street, very difficult and dangerous. Um, of course, the mafia is still there until the late 90s. But it's a tumultuous, interesting area. And you, you spoke of the vibrance and, and the energy. Take, take us inside New York at that time and, and some of the things you were seeing. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, I would say New York didn't really start to change or uh, LAFI, as I like to say, um, until the late 90s or early 2000s, um, really in the Giuliani and, and then Bloomberg eras. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, in that sort of Dinkins and Koch era, um, you know, there, there was sort of on, uh, I guess, uh, on one hand, some lawlessness on the other hand, a real sense of freedom and sort of, uh, you know, just sort of creativity without bounds. Um, and again, you know, to be at Discorama and to run into Lord Finesse or Stretch Armstrong and be shopping for records and then see the guys who I admired um, either as DJs or producers or, or rappers and knowing that we were sort of cohabitating in the same space, you know, it, it really sort of opened the aperture of my ambition and was like, oh, like all of this stuff is happening within blocks of my house. I, I think it actually is a realistic ambition for me to figure out how to sort of become a part of this. Um, you know, and, and also like I'm the type of kid who, you know, when I was into comics, like would look in the little fine print at the front of the comic and see that, you know, Marvel Comics was on Park Avenue and like just ride my skateboard over to see what the door to the Marvel office looked like. Of course, in reality, it just looked like any anonymous office building um, in midtown Manhattan. But I had this sort of idea of like what the Marvel bullpen must have been like. And so similarly, you know, when I started to like really get into hip hop at, at, you know, 15, 16, um, I just started like looking in the, you know, packaging of uh, different albums and seeing where the labels were and eventually, you know, ended up getting an internship at, at Nervous Records because I saw they were in Times Square and that was, you know. And that's so important, though, that quality, that obsessiveness about a passion. And it it strikes me at how rare that actually is, because if you speak to people day to day, normally, maybe they like a song or an album or a book or anything, they generally or even a TV show, they generally know very surface level details. And that's not necessarily a criticism, but they would often um, like a song like Wonderwall, but not know the album it's from, let alone the record label or let alone the, um, you know, the publishing house or all these minutia that you can get lost in. And of course, if you get enough in the weeds and enough in the minutia, there is job opportunities and, and a whole world waiting there. As you say, you get into nervous records. You also uh, spend a little while in NYU a, a short semester, I understand. Yeah, I was at NYU for two and a half years. Um, and uh, yeah, I, you know, the thing was, is I had gotten my internship at, at Ego Trip. Well, so first I was at Nervous, then I went to Priority Records during the summer between uh, junior and senior year of high school. And then I, I really sort of found my home at Ego Trip uh, in the spring of 97 when I was a senior in high school. And you know, those guys really took me under their wing and started showing me things. You know, the, the previous internships I had been at, all I did was like cut stickers and call record stores and sort of do research stuff. Um, but I didn't really feel like my enthusiasm was being matched by anyone that I had encountered. I was just sort of some anonymous kid that was there. And with Ego Trip, the guys really met me in the middle and every sort of you know, all the energy that I put into Ego Trip, they put back into me. And I, I sat down with my mom. I'd gotten into McGill and I'd gotten into uh, NYU 
in the in the spring of 97 and I was just like, look, uh, I know it's a little more expensive, but I'm ready to live at home to keep the cost down. If you can just send me to NYU, because I, I really feel like I have something that's going on here. Um, and it's going to lead to something important. Um, and, you know, right around the same time, uh, Sasha from Eagle Trip helped me secure a job in the fact-checking department at Vibe, which I did the summer between high school and college. And um, so then, you know, my mom somehow begrudgingly uh, was won over by this and uh, let me go to NYU. Traded and, a few um, more bonds. Yeah. And then it was like, uh, I think, you know, two years into that, I ended up getting a call from a gentleman named Dante Ross, who was, you know, is a legendary A&R who's involved in De La Soul and Leaders of the New School and Dell, um, Brand Newbie, and so many of the artists that I was obsessed with as a kid. And he offered me a job uh, as an A&R working at a little independent hip hop label that he uh, owned um, called Stimulated. And at that point, I just was like, school is fine. And I, I, you know, this has been, this has been a cool ride and it's afforded me the opportunity to, uh, keep writing about rap for all these different magazines while I'm here. But like, this, this isn't going anywhere. Is dropping out sexy at that point in American culture? You know, um, in the last couple of years, dropping out has become quite sexy because of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and these people. Is it seen as risky or or what are people saying to you? It was absolutely seen as risky. And, you know, uh, I think from my mom's perspective, she was just looking at how much of the bill she had already footed and the idea of me uh, leaving without cashing in on that with a degree was somewhat scary. But I actually had this incredible, um, incredibly fortunate situation that my sister's best friend at the time, um, the best friend's father was Bill Adler, who was the first uh, PR person at Def Jam, um, one of the first three employees at Def Jam or four employees at Def Jam. And so my mom, when I came to her saying, I want to quit and go work for this guy, Dante, she's like, all right, let me think about it. She calls Bill. And Bill was like, oh, yeah, Dante was my intern in 1987. He's a great dude. Look, Noah's not going to learn anything at NYU that's going to actually help him more than, you know, being under Dante's wing. He's good. Just let him Mm. do it. And that was sort of the, uh, you know, that tipped the balance uh, in my favor and got my mom, you know, to sort of The seal of approval. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, also, at the time, I think I was selling some fiction that I was going to go back eventually and (laughs) just give me some time to do this. And then, you know, I only have 18 months left. It'll happen. And uh, yeah, of course. never. never Yeah, you still haven't got around to that one, I assume. No, although I (laughs) I do have stress dreams about it every now and again. I'll wake up in the middle of the night in cold sweats, uh, imagining being unprepared at a final or something like that. It's only 18 months. Maybe you could do it online or something. Um, So so you, like, obviously you have been leading this kind of duality. On the one hand, you're working and in kind of the professional world of music. On the other hand, you're a student. um, And now you're going to merge the two and and just become somebody who has spent a couple of years in NYU and put your, you know, in the full working world. It's not to say, though, that you haven't been hitting the heights in the professional side of things, because when we talk about it, you met Jay-Z at 21 um, and you were flown out to L.A. at 19. So clearly they taught something of you in the places you were working. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I I got to Vibe, um, 
I had to lie and tell them that I was 21, even though I was probably about 17, 18 at the time. Um, and I worked that summer and, you know, I developed a reputation around the office just as a kid who was very early on records. Um, one of the things at, at that, that summer, uh, the, the song Deja Vu by Lord Tariq and Peter Guns had come out as an independent 12 inch and I had championed it in the office and that ended up going and being a number one billboard record 11 months later. And so when they launched Blaze, which was the sort of hip hop centric spinoff of Vibe, um, the gentleman who was the editor in chief, Jesse Washington, he remembered me giving him that piece of vinyl the summer before and he hit me up and said, hey, look, you know, I'd love to have you on the staff. Um, and I came on as an editorial assistant. And yeah, that first issue, I pitched them um, a one page story on Eminem um, because I had met Paul Rosenberg on a Saturday morning at a uh, Fat Beats. And uh, he happened to be in there talking to one of the DJs and they played uh, an unmixed version of My Name Is um, over the PA system. And I was like, is this the dude from Detroit? And he was like, yeah, this is Eminem, some new shit he did with Dr. Dre. And um, so I brought him into the, you know, into the office and played the music for the Blaze team. And uh, they flew me out to Burbank um, that summer. And I spent like a week um, trailing Eminem and Royce uh, as they were like mixing the Slim Shady LP. Yeah, some and this LP. is Eminem before the blonde hair, isn't it? Yes, this is before he's figured out any of his sort of marketing and stuff. He still is wearing the same damn Nike hat um, and, you know, basically black sweatpants and a black hoodie every day. Um, and he had, the album was more or less done. They were just finishing up the mixes and all that stuff. But it was still about nine or ten months until it would come out. Um it was a, Did you it was feel a, comfortable being in, in an Eminem's presence at that point because he wasn't an international success? You know, he was still coming up. So maybe it would be easier to hang around with an Eminem than Jay-Z in two years' time because when you meet Jay-Z, he's, he's of a much higher prominence. Oh, yeah. I mean, at that point, I had, you know, sort of made my bones interviewing underground rappers. That was sort of my beat and my scene. And so, you know, I'm hanging out with kids that are either my age or a couple of years older than me, we all have the same points of reference in terms of music and stuff. And so going to see Eminem, although I thought that he was incredibly talented and, you know, um, I was so taken by these records that, that Paul had played um, at Fat Beats, the idea of Eminem being a platinum or a diamond superstar was so far from, you know, uh, anything that seemed even possible at the time. Um, so I, yeah, I, I certainly wasn't intimidated by that. Um, but I was definitely taken by just like how musically gifted he was. Um, and particularly seeing him work in those early days, I did very quickly get the sense that he was operating on a different level than a lot of the underground artists that I had met, um, leading up to that. But his goal at that point, as I understand, wasn't to become what he does become, which is one of the most successful rappers of all time. It was essentially just to make it a full-time career. Yeah. I mean, he would knock on wood and just say, if I can just go gold, I will be so like, that will take care of my daughter and I can just keep putting out more records. Um, and you know, in that moment, um, this was still sort of like post, uh, Vanilla Ice backlash. So even the idea of a white rapper getting signed to a major label was pretty unlikely. Um, and then that that he would then go on to actual success seemed even more improbable. 
Um, but he was making these records and they were really interesting. And again, it was sort of like, you know, there was nothing on the radio that would lead you to believe that my name is, was going to be this massive success. Um, and, but you know, great songs are great songs and it doesn't matter if they sort of fit into, you know, uh, sort of predetermined, uh, you know, paradigms or whatnot. Um, and yeah, and, uh, but he managed to just, you know, he struck a nerve and it, it was just clear to me, like what he was doing was transcendent in, in, in so many ways. And, you know, and it, I just thought if it, if it connect, it's going to go all the way. Yes. And I'm, I mean, my God did it connect, but some of the interesting stuff around his work, like it was so shocking, I presume even at the time, but it has now actually gone full circle where it was shocking and people became a little bit uh, numb to it and it is now shocking again. Some of the records have been re-released with some of the most shocking parts kind of massaged out. He certainly was going balls to the wall during that period. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would say definitely, I mean, I remember going and... Um, meeting him in the parking lot of the uh, little sort of strip mall studio that he was recording in. And I could hear really loud music coming out of a car. So I walked over and it was him and Roy sitting. And I think they were listening to some mixes, trying to, you know, see how it sounded in the, in the car. And he was playing the record As the World Turns, which is like a, you know, really insanely hyper-violent, um, sort of almost cartoonish uh, record. And it gave me the same feeling that I had when I listened to like, you know, an NWA tape when I was like 12, where it was just like, this is really fucked up, but it's kind of funny. And I'm, I, I feel weird about listening to this, but like, that is such a visceral experience, you know, and particularly at that time, um, you know, in an, in an era before the internet where like, the most depraved things are, you know, one click away. Um, I think that that there was a real sort of, um, you know, value proposition for the, for a listener in being able to create that kind of discomfort. And his, um, his manager and longtime lawyer, Paul Rosenberg is also somebody who's quite interesting, but not really talked about. I wonder his role in the whole, in the whole thing, because of course you too made famous the idea that your manager is essentially part of the band and, um, they credit much of their success with their manager. So do you think that Paul has a big part to play in what became the Eminem success story? Definitely. Um, I mean, you know, Eminem doesn't do any of the things that Eminem has achieved without being this sort of unbelievably, you know, gifted musician. Um, so it starts there, but you know, I, I worked with Paul and Paul's a genius marketer. Um, he just has a sense for his great ideas and a sense for sort of how to create novelty out of art and create sort of pathways into it. Um, and if you look at, you know, so many of the rollouts for Eminem's albums. Um, there are just like genius taglines, whether it's like, you know, for the Marshall Mathers LP, it said fuck finals and they dropped it at the end of uh, um, the school year, um, you know, or the golden ticket that they put on, um, you know, the Obi Trice album um, that, you know, helped Obi sell something crazy, like, I don't know, 
400,000 units first week. Um, you know, or even like on the, the revive album, they did like these, this like viral campaign, um, taking over billboards with like essentially what looks like antidepressants called revive. Um, and just sort of like seated them and waited for the fans to notice that the font for revive had the backward Z and that it was, you know, um, sort of a, uh, that it was Eminem in waiting. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, so I, you know, I, I think Paul, has really, you know, I mean, they're partners on everything. And I, I think that, you know, um, he has absolutely been an instrumental in sort of helping, you know, M do the part that M, you know, M, M does everything that happens in the studio and he does it at the highest level. And then I think, you know, passes the ball to Paul and he does everything outside the studio at the highest level and makes sure that they have, you know, the right partnerships in place and, you know, all, all of the stuff on the business side is set up to allow for them to achieve the kind of success that they have. And it's such an important part of being an artist, you know what I mean? And what was something you would have witnessed firsthand throughout your, all of your years in this game is going from zero to one, you know, from being like underground, you've got no money, you have to mix, record, you have to do everything yourself or beg for favors, all this kind of stuff to getting some kind of success, a single, an album, anything, which then justifies everything else. You go from having maybe one person in your corner to an entire label or, um, you know, an entire management team, people who are really vying you on. Is there any examples that come to mind of, of that kind of struggle where you watched people go from zero, having kind of nothing and really struggling, slogging it out to actually making it? I mean, a couple, the, the, the two that really jumped to mind outside of obviously Eminem, um, are Kanye and 50 Cent. Um, you know, I, I had the sort of good fortune to interview 50 about at the, at the blaze office a couple of weeks before he put out how to rob. So this is in, you know, 1999. Um, and we developed a relationship and, and, you know, I would interview him probably three more times between then and when Power of the Dollar was ultimately supposed to come out the summer of 2000, I think. Um, and, you know, 50 was one of, you know, a dozen sort of underground street New York rappers. Um, and, you know... I remember talking to him, he, you know, he came to the office and played us how to rob and was very clear. It was like, look, I have one shot. I have to stand out amongst this scene of all of these other emergent rappers that I'm competing with. And so I know that if I call out everybody's name, they're going to pay attention. And he did that. And, you know, Jay-Z famously responded to him at Summer Jam, you know, three weeks later after the record dropped. Um... And I think, you know, and again, after, after that, 50 saw the opportunity with, you know, I think what he, he had a very sort of on, real and organic, you know, disagreement with Ja Rule, but he turned that into uh, a sort of launching pad for himself and really, you know, took all of the things that people said about Ja to deride him and became sort of the antithesis of that. And, and really marketed himself as that. And, and that, I think, you know, fueled his ascent. Um, and then, you know, from there to signing with M and Dre and 
you know. And it's a feature of 50 Cent, isn't it? This uh, incredible marketing machine that he seems to just have in his brain. I mean, um, even the stories of mixtapes and how he would create these mixtapes and distribute them on the corners of New York just to create a bit of buzz around his own name. No, absolutely. I mean, this was a period, like that happened because he had been blackballed by the industry because of the, the friction with Ja Rule and he didn't have access to the beats that he wanted, the most, you know, the highest level beats from the best names um, because people knew that he was kind of radioactive at the moment. He'd been shot, um, you know, he'd been dropped from the label. Um, so he went and took other people's hit records and turned them into his own records and then actually made hits on New York radio, um, you know, with sort of illegally used music. And, you know, again, I just think that it speaks to sort of his ingenuity and also his relentlessness. Like he, at every point where people counted him out, he just thought his way out of the the corner. Were you able to have a, a constant window into 50 Cent's ascension or was it kind of mainly that 1999 period? No. Uh, well, so, you know, um, I interviewed him a, a few times during that year. We, we, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think then, um, I interviewed it's a few him, years ago. Yes. At, uh, on the set of the, of the, in the club video shoot, um, I interviewed Eminem, Dr. Dre and 50 cent for an XXL cover. Um, and then after that, 50 asked me to co-author um, a biography with him um, called 50 by 50 um, that I did in, I think, 2005. Um, and so we spent, you know, quite a bit of time together, um, sort of putting together the story for that. Um, I haven't seen him much since then, probably since like 2006, 2007. But yeah, for the entire ride up basically to the massacre, um, I would, you know, see him every three to six months, I would say. It's incredible. And it's incredible. You have that relationship with so many. I mean, another being Kanye. Kanye is um, somebody, if I was to have anything behind me here on this set, I think it would be a Mosalim of Kanye. We spoke to Cudi and Chike uh, about a year ago. And I mean, the Kanye story is just fascinating. One you had, again, a front seat to. Uh, Mass Appeal number 18 is when I believe one of your first interactions with Kanye was. Yeah, um, we had a common friend, um, who I, you know, I worked at MTV briefly, um, and um, my friend Yasmin was the producer of the You Hear You Hear It First uh, segment on Kanye, um, which is featured in the Genius Doc, and you know, it was definitely kind of like was a a turning point in his career, it really legitimized him. Um, and so, yeah, when I went to Mass Appeal, this is my first issue. I reached out to Yasmin, and I was like, Hey, can you put me in touch with Kanye? You know, I hear he's got a some mixtape coming and he's he really signed to Rockefeller and she was like, yeah, he's, he's coming on Rockefeller. He's, he's a rapper. Da, 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 da. Um, and so I did this, you know, two page feature on him there. Um, and we just developed a relationship that, you know, would sort of blossom into, you know, something where I, for a time we were really good friends. And, you know, one of the most striking scenes in that documentary is when he's rapping to a lady in Rockefeller Records and she is not paying any attention to him. I think he's rapping All Falls Down. Now, some criticism has come since that essentially he did that every day. So no wonder she wasn't paying attention. But there did seem to be that absolute hunger and desire. He was almost screaming at them, take me seriously as a rapper. Did you witness some of that in your kind of early interactions with him? Absolutely. I mean, I... The first time I met him, I think I ran into him in front of Baseline Studios on 27th Street 
And within like, I don't know, 90 seconds of talking, he had me, so he had his car, um, you know, uh, parked right in front. He had the, the passenger door open and was playing some beats and was freestyling at me because I, I don't know, he didn't think that I was taking him seriously enough as a rapper in our first 90 seconds of interaction. Um, and, you know, the whole rest of the day was very, like, he was so emphatic that what he was going to be was bigger than anything that anyone expected. Um, and any time that I would sort of, like, talk to him in kind of, like, framing his career relative to, you know, I don't know, a Tribe Called Quest or De La Soul or, or Large Professor, he was just like, no, 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 no. You're not understanding. Like, I'm going to be Eminem big. I'm going to be Jay-Z big. Like, I'm Michael Jackson. This is not an underground rap thing. This is going to, I'm going to be a global superstar. Um, you know, you were almost time, kind of patting him on the back saying, well done, you're, you know, you're a great producer, but you're also within these brilliant wordsmiths, et cetera, et cetera. And he wasn't taking that because he wanted to be that, uh, I don't want to say pop star, but absolute, you know, behemoth. Yeah, exactly. Like to, to me, you know, and especially again, this is like, I am making my bread and butter interviewing underground rappers. And so a tribe called quest, it, you know, De La Soul, like large professor, these, these are the gods uh, within that scene. And so, you know, if I'm saying that you, I see you standing next to these people, that is a supreme compliment in my mind. Uh, but again, to him and he did, and this wasn't to disparage them or their success or anything, but his ambition from the beginning was always to be a global phenomenon. Um, and yeah, and it was, it was really funny because, you know, at the time, similar to the woman at Rockefeller, you're kind of like, yeah, like, look, these songs are great. But again, it was a little bit like Eminem where you hear it and you hear it all falls down and it's genius and it's a wonderful, it's a beautiful song. But then if you listen to the radio in 2003, there's nothing on the radio that sounds like this. There's no one in any videos that's dressed the way this guy is dressed. And as cool as I may have found him or as compelling as I found the music, you know, it is an industry and you're sort of like, yeah, maybe this will work. I don't, you know, who knows? Um, but for He wasn't Kanye, a safe bet. No, certainly not. And, but I think, you know, that's kind of, and I sort of like landed on this in, in writing about him in that early time. It's like his ambition, like, and, and that also that sort of sense of determination is kind of like the most consequential part of his personality in many respects because you don't buck every convention if you don't have that kind of audacity. And I mean that audacity in the, in the most positive sense. Like he was not playing the game to try to sort of like emulate someone and, you know, achieve some fractional success. He knew that he was going to swing for the fences and do something that at the very least he would be able to walk away knowing that he had made incredible art um, and be at peace with that. But I think he really also felt deeply, deeply convicted that it was good enough that it was going to break every mold. 
Um, and you know, it's, and yeah, it and strikes it, me almost that he's offended by barriers that people put in him or put on him. Um, the same with any kind of box people put on him. Um, you know, and again, from being a producer, he was offended at just at that being an underground rapper. He's offended at that. Even when he goes into fashion, uh, when people say, you know, just do the odd collaboration. No, no, no. He's he kind of every barrier. He isn't, he doesn't just see it as a challenge. He's immediately offended that you would ever kind of put him in a certain box. If we fast forward a couple of years to my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, again, people are putting them in a box um, and kind of the press isn't particularly happy with them. You've got the Taylor Swift incident. You are now closer to them than you were in earlier years and you get an insight into those studio sessions in Hawaii. Yeah, I mean, that, that was very much a sort of back against the wall moment for him. And it was interesting because, you know, as a, uh, you know, at the time I'm the editor in chief of complex and like the incident with Taylor to me was more entertaining than anything else. Um, and I don't think that myself or even the people in my sort of immediate circle in New York had any sense of how sort of, uh, polarizing that moment was and how much sort of collateral damage his career, you know, had sort of received. And, you know, it, it ended up that, uh, he was supposed to go on tour with Lady Gaga and then that got canceled because of, uh, you know, slow ticket sales. Um, and I think Kanye really felt like, you know, one, he un- I think he felt deeply that this was much ado about nothing, frankly, but also that it was now the ball was in his court. And if he was going to um, get back to where he properly deserved to be based on his art and his contribution to culture, that he was going to have to outdo even his own, you know, sort of uh, high watermarks. Um, And that was very much like, you know, the elephant in the room during those recording sessions was just that he knew that there was, he absolutely had to deliver something that was superlative both to his like, you know, base, but also that would be undeniable to his detractors. And there was an axe hanging over him, you know, um, people didn't want him to succeed, as you mentioned. And he ends up pulling these kind of 18 hour days. You talk of him sleeping in the chair, all of this kind of stuff. He was obsessive. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think Kanye's personality has always been, you know, he he, like Steve Jobs has an obsessive um, sort of and myopic focus on the work product always. It is the product above everything. It doesn't matter. He can burn out every collaborator, you know, um, push himself physically, mentally to to the limit. Ultimately, none of that matters. What matters is the the product and the consumer's experience with the product. Um, And I think, you know, in that moment, more than at least, you know, and and again, I, I don't say this to take take any of the sort of, um, you know, fervor that went into the first three albums because he lost a lot of sleep on those. But I think in that particular moment, you know, he really felt like nothing else is more important than this record being as great as it possibly can. And the rest of, you know, his life could go on hold while this got done. Um, and you know, yeah, I, I saw him work harder than I've probably seen anyone work on anything 
you know, in my career, certainly, um, he was obsessed and he, you know, was putting in, yeah, 18, you know, sometimes 20 hour days, um, and working around the clock. And he had, you know, a half dozen or a dozen other collaborators working, you know, there was four studios going at once. So there'd be like Cuddy in one room with Mike Dean and, you know, Q-Tip and a, and an engineer in another room and then two studios, you know, one with RZA and then him doing vocals in a, in a fourth and just moving through and cycling through, um, you know, sort of getting different energies from the different collaborators, um, having... And it speaks to an ability to work in parallel, in tandem. You know, he's working on minute two of a song over, you know, the second song. He's working on minute six of track number 14. Like, it's it's an incredible ability he has. One of the people he is speaking to in the rare off moments he has during those studio sessions is Kim Kardashian, who becomes Kim Kardashian West. You at Complex were some of the first people to discover Kim Kardashian. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I don't know if he was talking to her quite, quite yet then, cause that, that was really when he was with Amber. Um, but sorry, <laughs> sorry, he, he wasn't, yeah, maybe, maybe that's uh, the next Hawaii studio session. I know I mean, during I, the Hawaii days, he, there was some kind yes, of communication. Yes. Uh, I mean, he knew her certainly. They'd already done the pilot for, uh, his, his, uh, HBO show that never ended up coming out. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, Kim was, you know, I think this was my second issue as editor-in-chief of Complex, and in just, you know, a, a, a moment of serendipity, Mark Echo brought um, Nick Cannon by my office. They were just kind of hanging out and giving, he was giving him a tour of the office. And, um, you know, myself and, and a friend, Donnie Kwok, had noticed this incredibly beautiful woman who was sort of always adjacent to uh, Paris Hilton and in all of like the gossip magazines um, at the time. And I forget, we'd done some, you know, uh, deep internet digging and figured out, oh, this was Robert Kardashian's daughter. Her name's Kim. And then that there was a connection. She had dated uh, Nick Cannon. So all of that has happened, I don't know, in the three months previous. And I, Nick pops in my office and we chit chat for a few minutes. And I'm like, hey, I have a kind of weird question if this is inappropriate, feel free to tell me. Um, we were really hoping to get in touch with this woman who used to date Kim Kardashian. And he was like, oh no, Kim's the best, you know, yeah, you know, we're not together anymore, but you know, we're good friends and uh, she's great, yeah. And she, he gave me her uh, email and we just hit her up out of, you know, just a cold email being like, hey, we'd love to have you in the magazine. Um, I don't know if you, you know, are comfortable being a public figure doing press or whatever. And she wrote back pretty quickly, like, oh my gosh, yeah, I haven't done a, you know, real professional photo shoot before, but this sounds cool. Um, and uh, we shot what was supposed to be a two or three page feature for the magazine. And, um, and is it in the context of Robert Kardashian's daughter, who's now kind of flying high with Paris Hilton? It's in that kind of context, presumably. Yeah, it was just sort of like, hey, if you if you look at the gossip trades, you have seen this woman around. You've probably wondered who she is. Here's her story. Um, and that was kind of like, it was just going to be, you know, a two-page uh, feature in, in the front of the book. And um, in, you know, uh, just sort of uh, amazing, you know, sort of turn of events, my cover for that issue fell apart 
um, right before Christmas, and I was left twiddling my thumbs, thinking about unemployment, um, wondering what I was going to do, um, since obviously you can't shoot any celebrities really over the Christmas holiday, um, and knowing that we had to send this thing to the printer, I think like January 10th. And I come in on the 26th of December and see that, that, you know, look at Perez Hilton just to kind of catch up on the news or whatever. And again, this was me being like, I'm probably going to get fired. So I at least have to like keep coming into the office and like try to solve this problem. And I look at the news and I I see there, I think the headline was like, some woman you've never heard of has a sex tape with Brandy's brother. And I like click on the link and it's talk about how Vivid was going to put out this video with Kim Kardashian, da, 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 da. And I just thought, all right, I got my, I got my <laughs> cover here. And you compare um, the woman on the computer monitor to the picture you have in your hand and you go, I think they're the same. Yeah. And I, you know, hit Kim up and just said, Hey, look, this, you know, I, I understand this is happening. Um, you know, with or without your consent, they, they're putting this video out. I would love to put you on the cover and bump this up, but I, I'm going to need to ask a question or two about, you know, the tape. Cause obviously we hadn't talked about that during the interview and she was like, that's cool. You know, it is what it is. Like, I'm not psyched about it, but yeah, I'd love to be on the cover. And, um, yeah. And so we put her on the cover and that was in February of 2007. And, uh, Keeping Up With The Kardashians premiered, I want to say, about 11 months later. Incredible. So Kim Kardashian saved your job, in effect, you know, which is the incredible part of that story. Um, More than once. (laughs) um, I'm aware I've taken up far too much of your time. But uh, the final one being complex, you know, you've kind of skirted around it. But essentially, this has been, I don't want to say your magnum opus, but where you spend a huge amount of your career working in different capacities, editor-in-chief, then working on the content side as well. Um, you mentioned the magazines. What's interesting, I think, about Complex is that you had to make the shift from the magazine to the digital side. Tell me about maybe the the waning popularity and the waning effect of a magazine. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I started working there in 2005, um, you know, we made a bi-monthly magazine, um, I think six or seven issues a, a year. And um, that was, you know, at the time, you could tell that the air was going out of print publishing, um, but it, it was happening very, very slowly. And, the, you know, frankly, we were growing really dramatically. And, you know, the book was fat with ads every month um, until uh, Lehman Brothers collapsed in the fall of 2008. And um, the financial crisis started. And that really was like the death knell for the print industry, you know, uh, broadly speaking. And, you know, I sat with the publisher um, at the time. um, We had to let a few people go, which was, you know, incredibly uh, painful um, and unfortunate. And myself and him and the head of sales all had to take a 10% cut in our, our salaries. And... He was like, look, I think we can make it through this thing, but we have to have a really strong digital presence. You know, me and Moxer feel very strongly we can sell against this, but you have to create audience. Um, can you do that? And I, you know, I mean. <laughs> Give it a go. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, it sounds like our back is against the wall. So, yes, I will figure it out. And um, I sat down with my team and it was like, look, we can all work 50% harder. Or we can all go home. Like, what do you guys want to do? 
and everyone was incredibly responsive. And, you know, uh, you know, to be fair, we're all watching all of our friends at, you know, other publications getting laid off, um, you know, in, you know, the worst economic climate of our lifetime. So holding on to that job was, you know, we were all very highly incentivized, but we just sat there and, you know, really sort of put our nose to the grindstone and figured out what made the, you know, what made things move on the internet and how to express our, you know, brand value um, in a new uh, format, in a new medium. And three shows which which you kind of landed on, I suppose, would be Hot Ones, Sneaker Shopping, and Everyday Struggle. Yes. So that was that was in like 2008. And from 2008 to 2016, we just scaled a bit, you know, the digital business. Year over year, we were growing, you know, 100, 200% um, every single year. And then I want to say around 2013, we pivoted to video, um, as did almost everyone in the industry. And, um, and yeah, and out of that, we created Complex News, which was hugely, hugely successful um, and really became, you know, sort of a, a launch pad for so many careers, whether it's, you know, Jinx, um, who's gone on to, to host at, uh, at Rap Caviar, Sean Evans, obviously would then create uh, Hot Ones with Chris Schaumberger, um, Emily Oberg, who has the incredibly successful brand Sporty and Rich, um, and so many others. Um, but yeah, then after Complex News, then we really started getting into the shows. And, you know, we had done a sort of one-off thing with Joe LaPuma where he took uh, Jim Jones sneaker shopping. And we all thought it was incredibly entertaining. And Joe, you know, no one in media knows sneakers the way Joe knows sneakers. Um, and he just has this sort of ability to pull incredible anecdotes um, from people and, you know, just have this really sort of lively conversation um, with celebrities ar- around footwear and, and how it, how sort of foundational it is in them being who they are. And it's fantastic in an interview, isn't it? And I mean, Hot Ones is the same, to have a device um, upon which to center it, you know, the wings or the shoes or something where if the interview goes very dead, at least we have something to fill the airtime. Yeah, I mean, Hot Ones was one uh, that, you know, it's funny, Chris Schomberger, uh, who runs First We Feast and was a co-creator, um, had been sort of like pitching that to me for probably a year, 18 months prior to that. He really wanted to do a, a, a you know show where he made celebrities eat hot wings. And I was kind of like, if you can convince a celebrity to do it, God bless. Um, and fortunately, it was also an incredibly inexpensive format, which allowed us to do it uh, sort of under the radar of uh, the money people. Um, and yeah, one day, uh, you know, we walked into the morning meeting and the booking people were like, hey, Tony Ayo's coming by here. Does anybody want to do anything with him? And for whatever reason, the music department, everyone kind of like shrugged and it was kind of crickets. And Chris was like, hey, I've got this idea. I think we can pull it off in four hours if you, you know, if you think he'll do it. And we went to Tony Ayo and he was totally into it. And actually, Yeo uh, contributed uh, I think what would end up being an incredibly integral part of the format in that he insisted that Sean eat the wings with him. Um, he was like, I'm not going to just eat the wings by myself. Um, and I think that that component is, you know, so sort of clutch in creating that kinship between 
Sean and the interview subject. Yes, because it would actually, when you picture it, it would be quite an awkward interview if it was just one guy watching another guy eat wings and kind of peppering him with questions. You know, there's there's definitely a shared kind of camaraderie there. Fantastic, Noah, to chat to you. Um, Obviously, you have left Complex now and you've launched a new project, which is Idea Generation. You've got a podcast and you guys are working on a few other things. Do you want to plug anything? Yeah, uh, well, you know, we have uh, a show that is about to be in its fourth season, um, both on Bloomberg uh, on the cable channel, as well as our YouTube channel, um, which is a simple interview format show with myself and talent talking about their sort of, uh, you know, navigating of the intersection of art and commerce. Um, And we have a uh, a podcast called All Angles um, that we do in collaboration with uh, Will Packer Media and iHeart. which I think is absolutely fantastic and I highly recommend uh, telling the stories of some of the most impactful brands and culture through the voices of the entire team involved in making it.